Well, good morning again. Thankful to have you all here, and I'm also thankful to be singing um, unin uninhibited. Um, the sound is different, and we, we talked about how um, several weeks ago, how singing is one of the ways that we encourage one another as a body. We minister to one another by speaking truth to one another through songs. Singing helps you feel the truth, helps you remember the truth, and so it's, it's a joyful thing to gather with you and to sing together. Well, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. You can turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through 4. This is just a passage that's going to launch our time together this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is God's word. Let's pray. All of history, Lord Jesus, is about you. You are the pinnacle, the focal point of everything. It's all about you. The gospel is all about you. And Lord, that's what we want to look at this morning, the gospel, the good news of you coming and living and dying and making us your people by your grace and your grace alone. Lord, I pray that you would work this morning through your word, that spirit, that you would impress the truth on all of our hearts, the truth of the gospel, the, the needfulness of the gospel. Speak through me, not because I'm anything, but because you because of the goodness of your message, because of the goodness of you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that people, all of us, would see you this morning. We ask this and pray you bless our time now. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, after we've been going through this series, um, kind of under the umbrella heading of what is the church? Uh, what is the church? We've said we need to talk about this because uh, COVID and a number of the things around it have really exposed how we need to understand what the church is and what it's all about. It's also just a good time uh, as we start our time together uh, to be able to go back to some basics, to refresh our minds. And we need to do that often, to refresh our minds on the truth so that we are heading in the direction the Lord wants us. And so we talked about what is the church, and we said the church is the local temple, right? The temple is all about the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. And so we said that in this age, uh, it's not a building, it's the people. And as the people gather, like we are to this morning on a Sunday morning, we are manifesting that presence, right? The Holy Spirit is among us. And as we gather in a unique way that he is not otherwise present. And that, that functions as a beacon for the whole world, seeing who God is. And then we talked about who is the church. If the church is the local temple, if the church is a priesthood, how do we know who's in that local church. And so we talked about baptism being the initial identification with the church and with Christ. You identify with Christ, you also identify with his people. 
in the local church. And then we talked about how the Lord's Supper, when we celebrate that, that demonstrates who's part of this church, who's part of the priesthood. And because we take, partake in one bread, we are many, are one body. Baptism joins one to many. The Lord's Supper makes many into one. And along with that, we talked about church discipline, holding one another accountable to live holy lives. And then last week, we talked about what is the mission of the church. If we understand what the church is and who we are, what do we do? Well, we talked about the, the mission is making disciples, making followers and learners of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. And, and that mission is not just uh, external, making new disciples, new followers of Christ, although that's definitely part of it, but it's also the reality that we help each other grow in, in following and learning and loving Christ more. So we make disciples externally and internally. That is our mission of the church. And as I was thinking about that, I was talking with Ashley about it a little bit after service last week, we, we, uh, it kind of dawned on me that we also need to talk about, well, if that's our mission, that's good, but we, we, we emphasized last week we are speaking people, right? We speak the word. God creates his church, Christ creates his church, builds his church, builds up his body through the word. And so we need to talk about the content. We talked about the mission, but what's the content of making disciples, which is our big question for this morning, what is the message of the church? What is the message of the church? If we are to make disciples, and to be, we do that through speaking the truth to one another and speaking truth, proclaiming truth to a dying world, what is the message? What is the message that we proclaim as the church? Now, you know the answer to this. We proclaim the gospel. We proclaim the message of the gospel. We make disciples externally and internally. Remember, we, we talk about this idea that we, we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the truth to those external. We're trying to make followers and learners of Christ outside of the church and bring them into the church. But we also never, we never leave from being a disciple. We're always growing as disciples, so we speak the truth to one another inside the truth. And the substance, either way, whether we're talking external or internal, is the gospel. You see, we never move beyond the gospel. We should never, ever move beyond the gospel. The gospel is not just the entrance into the Christian life. It is the atmosphere that we live and breathe. It's like the foundation of a building. Remember, we talked about the temple, how the temple uh, in the, the New Testament, it's talked about how Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles and New Testament prophets and their teaching, what they said is the foundation for the universal church. So very, it's true to think of the, the gospel as the foundation, the speaking about Christ and, and how to know Christ. We never go beyond the gospel in our lives. You see, like the foundation of a building, it should always be there. If you remove the foundation, if you think, well, I can go beyond the foundation of this building. I don't have to worry about that foundation anymore. There's a serious problem. You remove the foundation, the building collapses, and such is the way with the, the Christian life. We always live in the gospel. We always come back to the gospel. Even like we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, did you notice how Paul said, it's what you believed and it's also by which you are being saved. We are being saved. And how are we being saved? We're being saved through continually entrusting ourselves to the gospel. And so what we're going to do this morning, what we're going to do is I'm going to walk you through the gospel. I am going to proclaim the gospel to you not only to give you a tool, you might notice in your bulletin, 
Uh, there's several points we're going to go through this morning, and there's several verse references under each one. Well, what I'm doing there for you, I'm trying to give you a tool that if you don't have a way to proclaim the gospel uh, to those outside the church, well, this gives you a way, and it gives you some verse references to start with. You could, there are other ways of doing it, uh, but there's a core there that, that is irreducible, but this gives you a tool to be able to speak the truth to those outside and to speak the truth to yourself. I'm also proclaiming the gospel to you because you need the gospel just as, and I need the gospel just as much as an unbeliever does. We never move beyond the gospel. The other thing I want to do as we, as I proclaim the gospel to you this morning, is I want to, uh, I want to situate the gospel in the context of the whole storyline of scripture. You see, what's happening in our age, people are increasingly biblically illiterate. If you were to compare what people just generally knew about Christianity even a few decades ago to what they know now, uh, they know way, way less. They know way, way less. They may have not even heard the name of Jesus. They might not even know the basics of the story. So things are changing And as we proclaim the gospel to people, sometimes uh, we just jump right into the the good part of the good news, which is fine, but people don't have a context for where to place that. Uh, We might say, well, you know, you're a sinner, and uh, God desires to save you, and so Jesus died to save you from your sins, and if you believe in him, uh, you will be saved. Now, all of that is true, but it's, it's, ab- it's abstract. There's no connection with wh- what? I, I don't understand that. Like, there's no connection with what God is doing in the world. So what you're going to have to do in our era, and increasingly so, is you're going to have to situate the gospel in the context of what God is doing through all of human history. And really, if you do that, it'll help you, I believe, because our culture loves epic stories. Did you know that? right? Our culture loves epic stories. They do. And friends, we have an epic story. And the difference is we have the true story. This is real. This is real. And so what we do is we want to situate the gospel in the storyline of scripture, which is why I've laid out uh, the gospel this morning the way I have. Creation, rebellion, redemption, new creation, and summons. Here is a way that you can proclaim the truth, not only to unbelievers, but also to your own soul, creation, rebellion, redemption, new creation, and summons. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Again, I want to give you a way of presenting the gospel to each other, to yourself, to those around you in this church. We all need the gospel and to those outside. So what is the gospel? Creation. Let's talk about creation God, the one true God, has always eternally existed as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each person being fully God. And the reality is these three persons, they, they have enjoyed, enjoyed from before anything ever existed, they enjoyed eternal fellowship and community with one another, each person loving the other person perfectly and sharing and exchanging glory with one another. God God didn't create what he created because he was needy. God created what he created out of the overflow of his majesty and his glory. God created everything that he did, not because he needed company, 
but because of his exuberant love within himself, he wanted to share that love with creatures. And so he created. He created. He created the universe out of nothing but the word of his command. We talked about how God creates uh, his church through his word. Well, God created everything through his word. God said, and it was, let there be light, and there was light. God's command, his word is so powerful to create out of nothing everything that is. And he did so to display his glory, his worth, his majesty, his beauty, his excellence. He did so to display his glory. And everything that God created was very good and was in perfect harmony and submission under his rule, including man. How does man fit into all of this? Well, God created man as the pinnacle of his creatures with a specific task. Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us... You're that us, right? That plurality of persons in the Godhead. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God has always been king. He is king today. He rules over all. There is no, no there's, people contest that and yet they cannot succeed because God is the ruler of all things. And yet he entrusted to man a stewardship rule over creation. And that's what's going on here in Genesis. God and uh, man was to be the image of God. And the idea of image in this culture, in this context of the time when Moses is writing this, the idea would be like a statue. A king would set statues of himself over his dominion to show this this king rules here. Well, that's what humans are supposed to be, is, is living statues of who this glorious and awesome God is. They were to live in community with God, to know him and to see his worth and his beauty, and then to extend that, to extend that to all of creation so that God might receive more glory and honor. They were to enjoy, humankind was to enjoy uh, who God is, to enjoy his glory, and then like mirrors, redirect that back to God because he is the glorious king over all. And it was a perfectly blessed, restful State. God put man and woman in the beautiful Garden of Eden to keep it and to enjoy intimate fellowship and communion with God. The, the fellowship that the Trinity had enjoyed for all eternity, it, it wanted mankind to share in that. This is a supreme act of love. They could eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, for if they did, they would surely die. Which brings us to rebellion. Rebellion. You know the story, or maybe you don't. Satan, the chief rebellious angel and adversary to God, enticed woman and man to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because in so doing, they disobeyed God's command, but the, the significance of the knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's, it's that they're seeking to be like God. They're seeking to decide good and evil on their own terms. 
That's the significance of that. To, to, they're essentially, what they're doing is they are stepping out. They are, they're seeking to be like God. They want to be equal with God or better than God. They're trying to separate, step out from under the, 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 the submission to God as the ultimate ruler, and they want to be independent rulers of their whole lives. They want to be self-worshippers. They want to be their own kings, their own rulers, the captains of their own destiny. This is how sin entered the world. And God kept his word, and man and woman entered a state of death and exile from God's intimate fellowship and presence. God can't live with rebels, people who are opposed to him and his rule. He is a holy God cannot endure sin in his presence. And so there is exile. They were punished with painful work and painful relationships. And not only them, but the whole of creation subject to decay because of this rebellion. This, this instant, <laughs> think about this. this, this took five minutes for sin to enter the world. And it has worldwide and cosmos-wide implications because of the rebellion that was expressed against the majestic and holy and glorious God. The state of sin, death, and exile that Adam and Eve entered has been passed along to every single human being, including you and me. And if we're honest, we live the same way, don't we? We, we do not naturally submit to God's rule at all. We are the rulers. We want rule over our own lives. We want to make the choices. We want to make the determinations. So we don't want God to be ruler. We want to live our own lives. And the death that is the penalty for for this sin, like I said, Adam and Eve entered into a state of death. They didn't drop dead instantly on that day, but they did just begin to decay and to die in every single human being without with a couple exceptions has dead the mortality rate of the human race is 100 percent you are in this room today myself we're going to die guaranteed guaranteed we will die unless the lord comes back before that but but given the past and seeing what was had this is the great problem of the human race right death but not merely physical death not merely physical death Revelation 20 describes a second death, a second death. Revelation 20, verse 11 says this. This is what's going to happen at the end of time, the end of history. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see, anytime we sin, and this isn't just 
outward actions. This is thoughts. God knows our thoughts. But any time we sin, what we're doing is we're, exchange, we're doing exactly what Adam and Eve did. We're exchanging the loving God and seeking his glory for, for self-worship. See, God is the most glorious, beautiful, excellent being ever. And he created us to worship him. But, but what we do when we sin is we say, no, something you created, whether it's myself or something outside of me, is better than you, God, even though you created all things and you deserve this worship and you're infinitely glorious. Uh, no, thank you very much, but I'd rather have something you created. Or I'd rather have a twisted version of something you created. Or I'd rather have myself. That is an infinite offense. That's a slap in the face to an infinitely glorious God. That's what our sin is. And we know that each sin that we do, whether it, it, sin is not just doing naughty things. It is, it, is, it is slapping God in the face, and we do this every day, right? We, we don't always perfectly live for God's glory. In fact, we often want to usurp that rule again and again, or uh, any time we disobey God's law, when we lie, we steal, we, we look at a woman with lustful intent, that's adultery, all these things, right, that God sees in our minds. We can't escape it, and we can't control it. We are sinners through and through, and this deserves God's infinite punishment. You see, an infinite crime, against an infinitely worthy God deserves an infinite punishment, which is the second death, which is the lake of fire, which is hell. And friends, I will not sugarcoat this for you because the Bible is clear what this is. And this isn't in the bulletin, so you can write this one down if you want, but uh, Revelation 14, 14.9. And you need to hear this. It is hard. But the Bible does not sugarcoat final judgment because this is, this, is, this is what our sin is. This is how gloomy and horrible and horrific our sin is. Revelation 14, 9, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image, just another expression of, of idolatry, another expression of sin, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. The, the, the scariness of hell, the scariness of judgment, is not that God is not there. It's that God is there. To a, a perfectly just and holy God, to, ex, to exact Punishment for an infinite offense against him. That's what each and every one of our sins do. And God is, God is a good bookkeeper, right? We just read Revelation 20, those books. Every deed, every, not, just, not just external deeds, but our thoughts recorded. Can you imagine every sin of every day of all of our lives being recorded in books? Can you imagine what, what just be, if I think about myself and all the sins I've committed, right, be boxes upon boxes upon boxes of records of what I have done against an infinitely just and holy God. And even just one deed where we disobey God or one deed where we fail to honor and love God with our whole being because he's infinitely worthy deserves this punishment. Friends, this is bad news. <laughs> we are all of us rebels against a holy God. 
And he is worthy. He is the creator. He deserves our worship. He is a holy and awesome, and he's designed to be the satisfaction of our souls, and yet we have traded him to find satisfaction in other things, in the creation and in ourselves, and we deserve his wrath. So that's rebellion. Here's the good news. Here's the core of the good news. Redemption. Redemption. Remember, we're setting this in the storyline of Scripture, so even immediately after Adam and Eve's disobedience, God announces a plan of redemption, the beginnings of how he's going to work. Now, God doesn't have to do this, right? God could condemn, and justly so, every person ever, and just left Adam and Eve and their progeny to die, but he didn't, but he didn't. And in Genesis 3.15, when God actually speaks to the serpent, the one who had, who had sought to usurp God's reign and, uh, and through it to help Adam and Eve usurp God's reign, he speaks, God speaks in the curse to the serpent, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is one of the most significant verses in the Bible. Because what it does is it sets up two camps. Those who are aligned with the woman, the offspring of the woman, those who are aligned with God, and the offspring of the serpent, those who are aligned with the serpent. And what you see, though, is there's a he. There's an offspring of the woman, a he, who will bruise, really crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent will crush, uh, bruise or crush his heel. This is the start of the gospel. The idea is that, that where Adam failed, there will be a new Adam. What should Adam have done to the serpent when he saw Eve talking to the garden? He should have crushed it. He should have annihilated it then and there, and none of this would have ever happened. And yet that's not what happened, so what do we need? We need another Adam, someone who will succeed where he fails to destroy the serpent. And if the serpent is destroyed, then things go back to Genesis 1 and 2 conditions. Perfect, perfect rest and harmony, fellowship with God, man able to be the image bearer of God that he was designed to be. And friends, this promised offspring. You see, this promise of an offspring, this is why the genealogies in your Bible are important, because <laughs> it traces who this offspring is going to be. And so from Genesis all the way to Matthew, which we'll look at in the coming weeks, it traces and whittles down who is this one going to be. Well, friends, it is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the last Adam, Jesus of Nazareth, the chosen one of God, the Christ. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus is truly God and truly man. You see, if you were to think about any other human being who's just man, right? They're just born in the natural way. How, they cannot approach God at all, right? There's this, there's this separation because of God's holiness. We cannot approach the majestic, holy God. So how can we get close to him? Well, only someone who can lay their hands on God and lay their hands on man, a mediator, can accomplish this. And this is why it is good news that Jesus is truly man and truly God. John 1. John 1.
John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, the Son, has always existed, but the Son became flesh. He became truly man. Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Do you remember what Genesis 3.15 said? The offspring of the woman. Sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was virgin-conceived. What that means is there is no earthly father involved, which is important because the sin nature is passed on through the male line. And so here is the solution. Here is the offspring of the woman that Genesis 3.15 talked about. And he's truly human. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children, he's talking about who Jesus is ransoming and redeeming, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the solution. This is the one we need. He's fully God, having infinite worth and value in himself, and this he demonstrated through his perfect life and miracles. But he's also fully man, and he's fully able to sympathize with man. Never sinned, having a perfect, lived-in flesh human righteousness. You, you see, in order to stand before God, what do you need? You need to not only have your slate wiped clean, but you need positive righteousness, a perfect lived-in flesh righteousness to stand before a holy God. And that is where the cross comes in. Because Jesus disarmed Satan's power of the fear of death, used to enslave humanity by bearing God's wrath for sin on the cross, bearing God's curse against sin for those who would entrust themselves to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the Again, one of the most glorious verses in all the Bible. It says this, For our sake, those who entrust themselves to Christ, for our sake he made him, that's Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 2, 
13. I want to paint you a picture of what was going on on that cross. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How were our trespasses forgiven? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt. You remember Revelation 20 and those books recording every deed, every thought. Think of that when you think of verse 14 here, by canceling the record of debt, canceling it, it's gone. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, the cross was not just a Jew being crucified on a hunk of lumber 2,000 years ago. No, it was God's wrath, that eternal weight of wrath that each one of us deserve, being poured out on Christ, nailed to the cross, that record of debt for those who entrust themselves to Christ, that record of debt being nailed with Christ to the cross. The devastation and the horror of the cross is not the physical pain as much as that, that was, but it was the, what, what Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, Father, let this cup pass from me. It's the cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank and drank and drank and drank and drank down to the dregs. He drank all of the wrath for the people who would entrust themselves to him. For those who would be united with him by faith, he drank that wrath. He canceled that debt. But not only that, there's an exchange. Our sin is counted to Christ for those who entrust themselves to him in his perfect, lived-in flesh righteousness, which we need to stand before a holy God, is counted to those for whom he died. And if he stayed dead, there'd be no hope because it would just be another person dying. It would show if Christ on the cross was dying to drink in God's wrath, it would show that he didn't exhaust God's wrath. This is why the resurrection is significant. John 11 John 11. Jesus didn't stay dead, but rose again on the third day. Remember, the great curse of sin is physical death and then the second death. So Jesus needs to rise again. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, he's talking to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, die physically, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so the idea is, is that Christ has solved our death problem because he solved our wrath problem. And so, even though Satan inflicted a minor wound on Christ at the cross, he bruised the heel. Christ delivered a crushing blow to Satan, the one who has the power of death. He bruised the head, fulfilling Genesis 3.15, setting up for the hope of all the Bible. And here's the amazing thing. Christ doesn't merely save those who entrust themselves to him from the penalty of sin or the position in front of God's eyes, right? They're legally justified. They're legally counted righteous if they entrust themselves to Christ. But he also saves from human corruption because he, after, after ascending to the right hand of the Father in heaven, Jesus sent forth the Holy Spirit 
Remember, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all involved in this. Jesus sent forth the Holy Spirit to live inside all who entrust themselves to him so they might live lives increasingly to glorify God and are increasingly free from the presence of sin. Look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Three sixteen. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see those language of glory and image? Remember what we were supposed to be initially? Image bearers, mirrors, seeing and beholding and enjoying God's glory and then reflecting that back to God, right? We cannot do that because we are corrupted in our natural state, and yet Jesus, through his death, purchased the Spirit to come and live in us to restore that image so that we could enjoy God, We can honor God. We can live lives increasingly righteous and holy. The Christian is not perfect, right? They they are counted righteous, and yet they still sin. And yet, through the Spirit, they live increasingly holy lives that honor and please God. So we've seen creation. We've seen rebellion. We've seen redemption. Let's look at new creation. Like I said, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, but will one day come back to judge the living and the dead, to claim his rightful rule as the new and better Adam over the whole earth. You see, Jesus' kingship, Adam was supposed to be a king, a steward king under God, ruling over all creation to honor and glorify God. Jesus is that king, that ultimate king who has done what Adam could not And what's amazing is that through Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus not only reconciled those who would entrust themselves to him, but he also purchased the realignment of all creation under his and his Father's rule. Colossians 1 speaks to this. Remember, we said how sin's ramifications were total. They were cosmic-wide. And so not only does Jesus uh, reconcile people to himself, but he reconciles the whole of creation. Colossians 1.19 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, all of creation has been affected by human sin, and Jesus, through his death, has purchased the realignment of all things in the world to himself and to God as the true and better Adam. He will restore all things in this world at his second coming, to better than original new creation, to, be, to better than the original creation conditions. And he will raise his people, those who entrust themselves to him, those who are united with Christ through faith. He will raise his people from the dead. We're still going to die physically, unless the Lord comes back before that, but we're still going to die physically. But his resurrection is the first fruits. The, of what we have to look forward to. 1 Corinthians 15, again, where we started this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until all, he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Remember the fall, the rebellion was a coup. It was a coup attempt, a, a, king, a hostile takeover of the kingdom or an attempted one. But Christ will succeed it through his resurrection. And then what's the final state? In the new heavens and new earth, what's it all look like? Where are we going in history after the resurrection? Revelation 21. Spend more time in Revelation. It gives us hope for the future. Revelation 21.3 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place. Literally, the tabernacle. Remember we talked about the temple and the temple through all of Scripture? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is where history is headed because of the cross of Christ, that focal point of all of history. It's everything. So, it's not just a story it's not just me telling you this truth this morning, but there's, there's he's, Jesus is the king, so there's also a summons. Jesus lives today at the right hand of the Father. Do you know that? He sees exactly what's going on in your heart and in this church service today. He knows who you are this morning. He is your rightful king. Whether you accept him as such or not, he is your rightful king. And listen to Acts 17. Look, listen to Acts 17. Acts 17, 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ commands repentance. He doesn't ask for it. He commands it. He commands repentance. What is repentance? Turning from sin and turning to Christ to entrust yourself to Christ. Jesus issues the call of discipleship, the call of the gospel in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. We've said these verses multiple times, but I love this, how he calls people to himself. He says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus is the rightful king and he is the final judge, but he offers amnesty. He offers a way through himself. Come to him. Don't just acknowledge facts about Christ. That's not enough. To acknowledge that these things that I've spoken to you this morning are true, that's not enough. You have, to do, you have to deal with Christ. He is resurrected. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is living today, 
And you, if you would come to Christ, you have to interact with him directly as the one mediator. You have to come to him. And coming to Christ means renouncing sin and living for yourself. We all live for ourselves naturally, which is abhorrent to God. Come to Christ. Coming to Christ means renouncing sin and living for yourself, entrusting yourself to Christ. You're not trusting a set of doctrines by itself. You're entrusting yourself to a person. I can know a lot of facts about someone, but when I I'm entrusting myself to them. I'm relying on them. I'm relying on Jesus' cross and resurrection work. I'm relying on his character as king. I'm relying on what he calls for. You're entrusting yourself to the living Christ and his cross and resurrection work alone. No actions or deeds of your own. You cannot earn the salvation. It's too expensive. But Christ gives it freely by his grace. There is nothing you bring to the table. And coming to Christ also means having Christ as the greatest treasure of your soul and the master and the Lord of your whole life. And if you come to Christ in this way, then he commands his followers to publicly identify with him and with his people, the local church. How do you do that? We've been talking about it the last few weeks. In the waters of baptism, repent and be baptized is the call. To begin to learn, enter the community of faith and begin to learn more about who Jesus is and how to follow him among his people. We're all on this road together. We're all learning how to follow Christ. That's what discipleship is. We learn to love and follow Christ and his commands better. Baptism, this act, symbolizes your identification with Christ's death and resurrection and your cleansing, right? You're being identified with his death. You're being brought up, you're being washed, you're being cleansed, and you're identifying with new life in Christ, life that he gives through his spirit. There are only two ways. Come to Christ and enjoy eternal life, rest and fellowship with God forever, or reject his offer through me to you and experience God's eternal wrath. You will either have Christ for your judge and your condemner, or you will have Christ as your Lord and Savior. So come to Christ. Come to Christ. And as we kind of wrap up here, remember, I just walked you through the gospel, and this is a tool for you to proclaim this to others, but it's also a tool for us, right? We need this. Christians, we need this every day. What happens when you sin today? You will, most likely, or tomorrow, or the next day you sin, what do you need to do? What do you come back to? You don't, you don't say, well, I've got to fix myself up so that I'm clean before God, and then we can have a good relationship again. That's, that's legalism. That's a false gospel. What do you come to? You come to Christ and you say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I have offended you. I've, I've, I've mocked your death, and yet I know that the only way that, that that sin was covered was on the cross. You already dealt with it, and I thank you for that, and I trust myself to that, and I, want, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to renounce my sin, and I want to follow the truth. That's how we deal with sin. We always come back to the gospel. We always come back to the gospel. So the truth we've communicated this morning, it's encouraged, it should be encouraging to your soul as a believer it helps us fight sin, right? If, if Christ paid such a price, he loved me in such a way, I don't want to give in to sin, the sin for which he died. So I remind myself of those gospel truths to help me to fight sin. And when I do sin, I come back to it, keep walking. 
And this is the truth we proclaim to others. This is the core of making disciples, the gospel. This is our message as the church. This is what we say. And what's nice about framing it in this way, right? Um, Creation, rebellion, uh, redemption, new creation, and summons is that you can dovetail this pretty easily with any conversation, right? You're talking with someone at work and they start talking about how wonderful and beautiful their weekend trip was camping or whatever, and you say, you know, did you know that God created everything by the word of his command? Do you know that he's the creator of all things and that he owns you as his creation, right? And you just start working into the message. Or maybe someone says, and this is is really easy, right? Uh, Man, there's so much brokenness in the world. I don't get uh, the shootings that happened this week. I don't understand why that happened. And you can say, well, actually, you know, the Bible explains that the reason there's that our, our society, our world is the way it is, is because of sin, the same sin that you and I have. And you know that God's going to hold everyone accountable, including you and me at the day of judgment. And you see how you just start working into that storyline of the gospel. And you speak the truth. We talk about sharing the truth. Well, have the mindset of an ambassador. You proclaim the truth. You proclaim the truth to those around them. It is good news. It is good news. And of course, as you talk with other people, you're not going to, it's not like you're trying to seal the deal, right? We sometimes think about, well, I have this gospel method, I'm going to get all the way through it, and I'm going to seal the deal, right? Uh, Don't do that. Um, It's kind of annoying. Uh, I don't like being sold to, so if you try to sell the gospel in that way, but we're not sellers, we're not peddlers of the gospel, we're proclaimers of truth, we're proclaimers of good news, and you may, you may have one opportunity speaking with someone, and you may get through the entire gospel, or you maybe only get through one component of it, and yet God uses that. What are we trying to do? We're trying to push people to the cross. And you may not be the one to see that person saved, but maybe you're one person in a whole line of people that God has sovereignly ordained and providentially arranged to speak to that person's life. So it's not like you have to—you might need to emphasize one of these parts more than another, but— And as always, when you're interacting with someone, you're not trying to just give them a pitch. You're trying to ask questions, be patient, and listen, and minister the truth, proclaim the truth to them. And I proclaim the gospel to you this morning, and in a room this size, I I don't know. I don't know your hearts. I don't know anyone's heart in this room, but God does, and maybe he's convicting you this morning. And if you need to talk, Talk to me, talk to Steve, talk to the friends around you, right? That what is the gospel? I need, to, I need to talk with Christ. I need to deal with Christ today and entrust myself to them. Do that. Come. Come to him. He calls you today. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You are a good Savior. We thank you for the good news. Lord, we are rebels, we deserve nothing, and yet you have had such mercy on us. I pray that the gospel would work in all of us, that we would remember it, that we would rejoice and give you thanks and praise, that we would proclaim it boldly because it's such good news. We love to speak of the things that we love, and so let us love the gospel that we might speak of it more. And Lord, please, if there be any in here this morning who are rejecting you, who are walking in stiff-arm rebellion, that you would humble them and draw them to yourself. Grant them mercy, we ask. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you and long for the new creation. 
where we will physically be with you and see your face and know you. The joy of heaven is knowing you and loving you and delighting in you. And Lord Jesus, we long for that. So we do also pray, come Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom. We long for that. Thank you for this time with these dear saints this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.